You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Okay, so I wanted to do a bit of a miscellaneous podcast, and a couple points, and then answer some questions. Uh, first of all, thoughts about Joe Biden, the Democratic vice presidential nominee, Barack Obama's choice for the vice presidency, uh, the senator from Delaware. My first thought is that it's been all of eight years since we've had a VP nominee named Joe. Joe Lieberman, of course, from Connecticut, the Democratic nominee. But before that, Joe Robison of Arkansas, the 1928 nominee of the Democrats, ran under Al Smith. Alan Joe, the button said, let's go. They didn't. They lost to Herbert Hoover and Charles Curtis that year. In a past podcast, we talked about there being about five reasons to choose a vice presidential candidate. Regional balance, party unity, to make up for a weakness or perceived weakness in the presidential candidate, a buzz factor, and a personal choice of the presidential candidate. Joe Biden's a solid choice in many ways. He brings a working class credibility to the ticket. That's something many commentators say Obama needs. It definitely helps Barack Obama with the experience factor. Having served 30 years in Washington, D.C., he's been around quite a long time, ran for president in 1988, uh, was on the Foreign Relations Committee for quite some time. He's been a noted commentator on Iraq, many foreign policy issues. He's got credentials there that are going to be tough to deny. But I think it's really a whole package. I think it's less of any one reason why Barack Obama would choose Joe Biden. And it's really a kind of a plethora of little benefits in many of the areas that we look for in a vice presidential candidate. I think that made him very attractive for Obama. Probably the largest one is the experience. Um, He does not bring much of a regional balance. Delaware is safely a blue state. He does not bring much of the Electoral College along with him. Delaware has three electoral votes. It's one of the smallest pieces of real estate to earn the label state. But there could be some Pennsylvania effect as Wilmington's media market or Delaware's media market really is Philadelphia. And this is where he's been buying campaign commercials in as he's run many times for the Senate. He's bought in the Philadelphia market. So Pennsylvanians have been seeing his ads. They'd also seen news coverage of him as a senator from a neighboring state. For that matter, uh, southern New Jersey also is in that same media market and would be very familiar with him too. And New Jersey is a, uh, a state that at least is being mentioned. I doubt it's much of a swing state this year, but it's at least being uh, uh, thrown on the table. A buzz is not a huge factor here with the Biden choice. I mean, there's always buzz from any vice presidential pick. Obviously, this is a big news story. There's suspense. But uh, I don't think uh, the Joe Biden is a celebrity, and I uh, don't think that it's uh, 
you know, there's a huge of a surprise. He was definitely on the short list, but it's a solid choice. I think that will always win. Uh, you know, you have a solid choice and not a total disaster. That's going to look good for the presidential nominee's decision making. He will make a decent attacker, which has got to be part of the role of vice president, uh, vice presidential candidate in a modern campaign. He's going to be a good debater, and uh, since 1976, presidential candidates have had to think about how is my uh, vice presidential nominee going to perform in the VP debate. He's not Hillary Clinton, and anyone but Hillary Clinton leads to a party unity question. Uh, Are there going to be upset supporters of Hillary Clinton? I do think that right now this is more of the McCain campaign in action. They kind of had a uh, fairly good PR move in getting the media to focus on the the Hillary question uh, so much. Uh, The McCain campaign issued a press release right after the Biden choice saying how, showing how disappointed uh, Hillary Clinton supporters were. And I I do think there's going to be some Clinton supporters who are just going to be unenthusiastic supporters of the Democratic ticket this year, upset a little that she's not not the, the nominee. But my suspicion is that, like the Democratic voters, and for instance, an election like 1968 where the party was so split, they will come back to the nominee on election day. And what this could possibly do, which is actually a little bit of a benefit for a Democratic nominee, is create a little bit of a late surge that isn't counted on as these voters decide when they go into voting booth that they're not going to vote for the opposition party. Biden's nomination raises the historical profile of the 1988 election. This is an election after Reagan uh, served his two terms in which both parties had open races. So there's a lot of talent uh, put on the field. Three times now, candidates who ran for president in 1988 have become vice presidential nominees. On the Democratic side, we have Al Gore and now Joe Biden. And on the Republican side, we have Jack Kemp, who was the Republican nominee in 1996. Nearly everyone from that election, except for Michael Dukakis, did well afterwards. Dick Gephardt became majority leader. Bruce Babbitt got a cabinet post. On the Republican side, as we mentioned, Jack Kemp, the nominee in 1996 for vice president, and Bob Dole, who was a candidate in 1988, was the 1996 nominee. Uh, now, what does this mean in the long run? I think it just adds a little bit to the modern-day factor of running for president is just a good thing for your political profile, and you're just going to see at the next open election. Now remember, whatever party doesn't win the White House in 2012, it's going to be their open field. Running, joining that open field is a great way to raise your political profile and going to have all sorts of people running who maybe have no chance and know they have no chance of winning the presidency. Look at how good it worked out for the 1988 nominees. I think there's an element of personal choice you can't get away from now um, with any of these nominees. Joe Biden, I think, you know, there's been criticized in the press for uh, copying the speech in 1988, uh, criticized for how long he talks or he goes on and on or makes silly points or things like this. I think in a way it's a personality play. I think uh, Obama's comfortable with him. You put him out there and we're going to see what happens. Uh, People are either going to like this guy and he's going to have a kind of connection with people or not. What it does not do, it doesn't uh, 
do what's a fairly recent trend of doubling up on a message, like in 1992 when Bill Clinton wanted to send a message that the Democratic Party was modern and it was southern and it was young, and he picked Al Gore, who had the same attributes in a way that uh, Clinton had. He's not doubling up here. Obama's big message has been change, and Biden's been in Washington for 30 years. So he's not doing that. He's not doubling up on the message of the Democrats representing a minority, whether it be blacks, Hispanic, or women. Joe Biden doesn't represent any of those three categories. But it's also not an old-fashioned vice presidential choice, which will be chosen for the more old-fashioned reasons of strict regional balance. We talked about a few electoral college effects he might have but not chosen to get a region of the country like the South or the West. Not chosen for those reasons. And although there might have been some calculation that this was to help to gain some of the people who would have voted for Hillary Clinton, this is not a part of unity choice. Uh, The party will be unified because a lot of people like Joe Biden and like the choice, but it's not a strict old-fashioned type of Hey, you got to pick somebody from this faction and that faction type choice. In modern elections, this just reinforces, it's one more uh, modern election that reinforces that some of those old reasons for doing politics that way are finished. And really since 1976, with some exceptions, it's been about choosing the nominee, the presidential candidate's comfortable with, that offers some assets, maybe backs up a perceived weakness or gives you a little bit of a buzz factor. In terms of the comparison that uh, I've made in a previous podcast and sort of continue to look at as this election rolls out in 2008 is the comparison to the general election of 1976, uh, Ford versus Carter. Uh, So far, this Biden pick just fits right in the narrative there. The choice of Biden by the new sort of uh, inexperienced surprise winner of the primaries uh, who picked a, now an experienced senator really mirrors the choice of Walter Mondale by Jimmy Carter, who was again a surprise winner of the primaries, governor of Georgia, not that many people uh, knew of him, picked Mondale, who had been established in the Senate, maybe not as long as Biden, but knew uh, how things work there. And it was well known that just like with Biden, that uh, as vice president, Mondale could be real helpful getting legislation through. And I think Biden offers the same benefit. Now, an important question is, since we know that John McCain was not going to make his selection until after Obama did, he's allowed to do that because of the scheduling of the conventions. And he's not going to apparently announce his nominee until after Barack Obama has accepted the nomination. It might do it the day after. We'll see. How does the choice of Joe Biden affect who McCain picks? It's obviously a factor since he's waited to make this decision. And I think it affects it in a couple of ways. In a, in a way, you know, this is a, this is a check. Kane's in a little bit of a pickle in a way. Because Joe Biden's chosen for the new sort of enlightened modern reasons, you know. He can be a good vice president. He can help get legislation through. He has experience. He gets along well as the personal choice of of Barack Obama. If McCain now makes a move 
that's more of a blatant play for the Electoral College or the play for one state. Let's say he chooses uh, Tim Plawenty of Minnesota. Or if he chooses a traditional kind of conservative to try to cinch up the party unity, I think you run the danger pretty quickly of that uh, McCain campaign looking very old-fashioned and doing things for the old reasons. So at minimum, he's got to pick his own Joe Biden, somebody that he chose uh, because they'd make a good vice president, that um, it's not for a blatant political or electoral college reason. That's the minimum. That sort of gets you out of check. Doesn't advance the game very far for McCain. But one thing the Biden choice has done, being that the Biden choice is not radical, it's not a surprise choice for Obama, he's opened up the opportunity for McCain to make a radical choice here, to surprise the media and surprise the the voters and uh, do something a little different that will generate some buzz. And of course, everyone's talking about the possibility of nominating a woman vice presidential candidate. Of course, uh, he's trying to appeal to these Hillary Clinton voters. And the the names that you're hearing about is Sarah Pound, the governor of Alaska, relatively new governor. Uh, we would then have two vice presidential candidates from small electoral college states. Definitely not electoral college play. Uh, you're hearing about Kay Bailey Hutchinson of Texas, uh, which would blend the conservative and also picking a woman, but would get him nothing in the electoral colleges. Texas is going to go for McCain in this election, unless it's a real landslide uh, for the Democrats this year. And Carly uh, Fiorina, the former uh, executive of Hewlett-Packard, which would be kind of a double surprise because she's not been involved in politics but has been an enthusiastic supporter of his campaign. Or he could go with something like uh, a Hispanic, perhaps uh, Mel Martinez of Florida. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. 
Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You know, just to throw some names out there, uh, he could go with Bobby Jindal, who's an Indian-American and the governor of Louisiana. He could go with Joe Lieberman, who is, of course, a former Democrat and now an independent senator from Connecticut, obviously shares uh, McCain's views and will be speaking at the Republican convention. That would be history making a course because Joe Lieberman was the nominee eight years ago of the Democrats for vice president, now the nominee of the Republicans for vice president. That would be quite a historical uh, event. Sort of happened once before if you look at the John Calhoun who ran for vice president along with John Quincy Adams and then ran with Andrew Jackson. Parties weren't so definite at that point. They're just sort of factions. And so I think that's what there is to say from a semi-historical perspective about the Joe Biden uh, choice. Another note, I took some note that Democrats said that their chances looked as good in 2008 as a party uh, for winning both the presidency and the House as it did after Watergate. The, the Democrats have been in the best position in terms of uh, polls since Watergate, in terms of voter uh, feelings about the Republican Party and about uh, the Democratic Party. Uh, fundamentals of the party are sound. House races look very good this year. In that uh, statement, which is actually issued by the Democratic Party, I think forgotten in it, and it sort of takes a history and political buff to see, is that uh, we dealt with this 1976 comparison podcast. The election after Watergate was the 1976 election, and that general election was kind of a rough one for Democrats. It was a win. Carter certainly defeated incumbent President Gerald Ford. Now, it was an achievement, but it was a close win, and I'm sure that that post-Watergate election is not something the Democrats want to imitate this year. Razor-close election that, uh, you know, one more slip-up on the part of Carter and, uh, you know, without his uh, hometown Southerners coming to vote at the polls in great numbers, could have gone for its way. So the Democratic National Committee might want to be careful about what time period they make comparisons to. Okay, I'll take a couple of questions here. Nick writes, Hi, great podcast. I have a non-presidential question. Hope that's okay. Your recent episode on the Second Amendment, which dealt a lot with the framers' intent, got me thinking about an amendment to the Constitution that seems to go completely against the framers' intent. I'm referring to the frequently ignored 17th Amendment, which called for the direct election of U.S. Senators rather than their selection by state legislatures. While direct elections are more democratic, the framers flatly rejected this approach with respect to senators. They decided that only members of the House of Representatives would be elected by the people. Congressmen would then represent the interests of their specific local constituencies. Senators, on the other hand, chosen by state governments, would represent the interests of those governments, not all of the people in the state. 
It seems to me that if senators were still chosen by legislatures, the vast majority of pork barrel spending on congressional earmarks would be eliminated because the senators would no longer use the term, uh, use them to bribe voters, says Nick. And he also asks, what's your take on the direct election of senators? Why was the change made? And what do you think the effects have been on the government? It's a great question, Nick. And it's good to talk about something else besides the presidency in 2008 because uh, so much else will affect American government than just what the president does or just who gets elected president. Uh, Everyone, Democrat or Republican, should be looking at those House races that are going to happen this year. Now, obviously, the presidential race will have a big impact on the House races and on the Senate races. These are the people who are going to enact or not enact all the wonderful proposals that the people running for president are talking about. Now, to the question of direct election of senators, the 17th Amendment. When the Constitutional Convention created the Senate, they didn't want a representative body, as you say. They wanted a body of great men, of elites who could watch over everything. Think about this. The very term Senate harkens back to the Roman body, the Senate. Although much of American government comes from English or European models, and it's true that the, the idea of a Senate is based somewhat on the House of Lords in, in England, I mean, they don't call it a Senate, frankly. They call it a House of Lords. And so uh, there's something to be said by the kind of blaze of glory in choosing a Roman name for your uh, body. But they wanted a bicameral legislature. That was clear from the Virginia plan that started the Constitution. Um, as a side effect of choosing to have two bodies in the legislature, when they ran into problems in the Constitutional Convention with the small states, it gave them something to throw out to them. And that is that they could take the one body, the House of Representatives, the larger body, and the more representative body elected every two years, and uh, make that representation by population. That's the way it had to be. But then they could take this other body, the Senate, this group of wise men, and say, okay, this one, we're going to have each state have two members. It didn't happen overnight in the convention. It took a lot of fighting. It took several uh, committees that broke off from the whole constitutional convention to decide the matter. But they pretty much decided that each state would get two senators, an equal amount, and then that Senate would not originate money bills. That was the, the, uh, that was the compromise. So the House would do that because the House is closer to the people. So they get to originate the money bills. So in a way, I think that one of the reasons the Senate didn't end up being representative by population and elected by the people is that they had this one body that they knew was going to be elected by the people. That was clear from the beginning the Virginia plan, and from throughout the uh, Constitutional Convention debate, the House was going to be elected by the people. They didn't want the president that way, didn't want the Senate that way, didn't want judges that way, but the House was going to be elected by the people. So once they had that in the bank, sort of, they could afford to have the Senate that was going to be the wise men, and not a lot of thought was given to electing them in different ways. There were a couple of proposals, um, but for the most part it was decided, let's have the state legislatures. Not surprisingly, some of the people elected to the first Senate, Rufus King, Robert Morris, William Patterson, big landowners, 
powerful people, but also people who were known statewide, so that all the state legislators would uh, have known them. I think it's significant that the Constitutional Convention gave the senators six years. They wanted them to be independent. There's never a mention, and it's, it's pretty clear that they didn't want the state legislators to feel that they owned these senators because they appointed them. It was just like a uh, uh, just like a judicial appointment from the president. You appoint the person, but they don't answer to you. Uh, that being said, and I see your point about the uh, senators before the Seventeenth Amendment being elected by state legislatures perhaps not needing to bribe voters or voting for as much uh, pork barrel or things like that. I, I think that's limited in, in, that, uh, in preventing that because you still had senators who six years from now you know, wanted their job back. Yes, it's true they're not going to the people, they're going to the state legislature, but the state legislature is elected by the people, and so in a way I think it was just one extra level that the pork had to go through. Uh, Now state legislatures could control a degree of federal pork, if you will, and could get there, ask their state senator to vote. Yes, they're a little more independent. They have the six years. Didn't have to vote that way. But you can say the same thing with the independents about senators elected by the people. So I don't see too much of a difference there. The one thing that did start to happen, especially around the, the late 19th century, turn of the century, and this led to the progressive movement, is that the bosses really controlled uh, state legislatures and therefore had the senators sort of in their pocket. And so that was the reason for the progressive reform, so that at least the people would uh, get a choice at the ballot box. One thing that doesn't get talked about a lot in, in this question is the declining role of state legislatures in federal activity as the result of the 17th Amendment. When the Constitution was created and the first U.S. federal government was created, it's federal. That means there's a role for the states and a role for the national uh, government, which we now say federal. But really federal means union of the states and the, and the national government. And that uh, role of state legislatures to vote for a senator and send the senator to Washington gave them a, a, a voice in the federal government, which they really don't have now. The only thing that's left now is that state legislatures have a role in voting for constitutional amendments. That's all that's left. So in a way, it's kind of diminished the importance of state legislatures, uh, certainly from a, from a national politics standpoint. And I think... diminish the importance that voters attach to the state legislative elections and how closely they watch it and how closely they they want to support their candidates at that level and watch those elections at that level. And that's probably a negative thing. Uh, it'd be hard to say whether I think overall. I think uh, I would always, I would err towards that popular election is better You've got the six years, and that has led to, in both systems, the Senate being a more collegial 
and more moderate deliberative body. In that way it has worked. Bill Smith writes in uh, reaction to the podcast on Iraq in the context of other American wars. Your podcast is outstanding, and I have a lot of respect for your interpretations. Catching up via podcast, so this will be old. One quibble, one suggestion. I would have to suggest that World War II was a double election war. Uh, in this podcast, I had indicated that Vietnam and now Iraq were the only two wars that stretched across two elections. So Bill says, I would have to suggest that World War II was a double election war. FDR's No Boys to Foreign Wars campaign were promises were a major part of the election, but there were Sabrosa efforts to the Chinese and mixed messages to American volunteers moving across the poorest Canadian border. The suggestion is to look to a broader Philippine insurrection versus Iraq war. I did a little of this in my survey course this spring. I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head with syncing up the Philippines rather than Vietnam as the general media culture is doing with the Iraq war. Not only do you have the quick war, Spanish-American, Gulf War One, it sets the stage for a longer occupation. There are all the cross-cultural events, atrocities, the home opposition, direct and indirect casualties in the theater, uh, Capturing Aguinaldo was only part, the quelling of violence through Taft's second commission, and the focus on fixing the infrastructure. Absolutely. For anyone who uses the phrase, you know, history repeats itself. The Philippine-American War and this current Iraq War just line up perfectly, as if someone's writing a textbook, you know, as we go along here. Uh, I think that they had the Spanish-American War, which is a quick victory led by the Philippine War, which was not. And here you have, I actually wouldn't use the example of Gulf War One. I'd more use the example of the initial Iraq invasion of March, April, May 2003, and then the occupation thereafter, which is still going on, obviously. Um, in terms of World War II being a two-election war, on the basis of the fact that certain issues from the crises in the world going on were involved in 1940. If you held to that standard, you'd have to add World War One, because 1916 would fit right into that definition. Obviously, foreign events dominated uh, 1916. It was all about uh, Wilson and how he was operating with England and Germany in an effort to keep us out of the war for as long as possible. But in this cast, I had a pretty strict definition here of actual major you know, boots on the ground during an election, and therefore the two wars you get are Vietnam and Iraq, which stretched across two elections. It's also more instructive for the purpose of understanding 2008. And the question being, how does a first election during a war compare to the second election of the war? In the case of the first election of the war, we got a decent amount of history. You have uh, the War of 1812. 1812 was an election year, and the incumbent party won. The election of 1864. 1864 was the middle of the Civil War. The incumbent party won. You have 1944. The incumbent party won. These are the first election held in a war. We don't have a lot of examples of the second 
election. And so we have the two that I mentioned in the podcast, Iraq and Vietnam. And my initial hypothesis would be that in the first election, you have a swap horses effect. People are going to run to the, towards the president and the incumbent party. Bush definitely got this in 2004. There's a certain group rallied to him. My guess is that in the second election, you lose it. But the only one election we have then to test it is 72. Nixon won that election, and he won it overwhelmingly. But it's not entirely clear that he won because we were in the middle of war and people didn't want to swap horses. The war was the one issue for him that wasn't good in running against McGovern. It was McGovern's one issue. And really, what really clinched the deal for Nixon in 72 is when they announced peace talks. So I still think I would hold to that view that there's a big difference between the first election during a war and the second election uh, during a war. And we're going to see evidence of that in 2008. And, you know, as history moves along, you get more precedence. And that's what I think is great about being an election year. J.A.M.C. writes, Whatever happened to the Republican progressive? I hear about them back in the 30s. When FDR created the term liberal, meaning democratic progressives, where did the others go? What has happened to them over the years? That would be interesting to look at, I think. Well, J.A.M.C., thanks for your comment. Uh, It's interesting. The Republican Party, for a lot of American history, was the more progressive party. If by progressive you mean the old-fashioned meaning that you want to get government more involved in making life better for Americans. Uh, There were certainly a lot of Republican progressives throughout American history. And even during the New Deal, when FDR sort of claimed the mantle of progressivism, many Republicans, think of George Norris, the Republican senator from Nebraska, Hiram Johnson, the progressive Republican from uh, California, or Fiorello LaGuardia uh, from New York, were all Republicans and all supporting Franklin Roosevelt and strongly supporting the New Deal. In a lot of cases, Roosevelt would not get bills passed without Republican votes. In terms of when the Republicans sort of shed their progressiveness, uh, you got to look at the 1912 election because that's when Teddy Roosevelt actually pulled the progressives out of the party and ran as the progressive candidate. So that split in 1912 between conservatives and progressive really lingered in the party for quite some time. And conservatives really controlled the nomination of Republicans from 1916 onward. One could argue in 1936 it went a blip back to the progressive side of the Republicans, and they supported two candidates that had supported Teddy Roosevelt. But conservatives really held the, the party. Um, JMC uh, answers... That split would put it around the time of Woodrow Wilson, who was considered the first progressive president. It's interesting, though, that a lot of Wilson's ideas really didn't catch on to FDR, uh, says JMC. We have many different terms for the Dems, regular Democrats, social Democrats, liberal Democrats, Dixiecrats. However, when you think about Republicans, you basically think of conservatives, perhaps a few moderates. Did this idea come out of the Cold War era? Actually, to the extent that I can put a date on any of these things, I put the critical moment 
not only in sort of ending the momentum of the progressive Republicans, but in really defining the two parties in America. In 1914, and it's a pretty obscure midterm election that nobody thinks about, but it was one in which Republicans gained seats where they ran candidates who were conservative and lost where they were progressive, and where Wilson's party was quite the reverse. His party was able to hold on to the House by winning progressive Democrat seats in the West, and everybody drew the lesson. Democrats needed to be more progressive, and Wilson certainly moved in this direction, and progressives helped him win re-election, and Republicans turned more to the conservative base. One of the senators elected in 1914 would be Warren Harding, who would become the 1920 nominee and very much a conservative. In terms of FDR and uh, enacting some of Wilson's policies, well, Franklin Roosevelt had two idols, Wilson and his second cousin, Teddy. <laughs> Wilson actually increased the federal government in a much more dramatic fashion, proportionately from what it was to what it would be when he became president as a result of World War I, in much more dramatic fashion than even the New Deal had. And the New Deal kind of created the base for which, I'm sorry, and the World War I kind of created the base for which the New Deal would be run on. Some people who served on the World War I boards were brought by Roosevelt onto the New Deal boards. It was treated very much like a war. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.